At the end of the morning this morning, we're going to be presenting a family for membership. Many of you know the family, uh, Greg and Tracy Fields, and um, as part of that presentation for membership, their daughters are going to be baptized by immersion this morning. It's an occasion for a little bit of extra explanation. Greg and Tracy are, and their family are coming to us from a Presbyterian church where Greg has pastored here in Greenville for the last eight and a half years and pastored faithfully, mind you. The Lord has led them to be part of this people, and if you are familiar with the difference between Presbyterian, aside from being really hard to spell, and Baptist, which is much easier, which is why I'm Baptist, because I can spell it, um, I'm being facetious, is uh, the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists is worth a little bit of explanation, because um, the difference weighs into or impacts what's going to take place this morning. Presbyterians are what are called paedo-baptists and believe in sprinkling infants um, of believing families. Uh, we are, as Baptists, we are confessional Baptists or credo-baptists, and we believe in baptizing by immersion at the point of, or nearabouts, the point of confession. So when someone is able to articulate their faith and express uh, their trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord... That, we believe, is the confession part of baptism and is fitting for baptism to come next. Now, um, I had the chance to meet with these girls yesterday and their family, Greg and Tracy, and Lamus was running around here as well. Um, and I confessed to them, and I'm, I just don't know how else to, other, any other way to be than just being open. I'm nervous about this baptism, not because it's not something that's awesome, because it's so easily misunderstood. And thankfully, I believe, after our time that we spent yesterday, it's a faith event for them. Now, what happened when they were little, what we talked about yesterday, I shared with them that I'm nervous about it because I don't want them to misunderstand it. I don't want to somehow call what happened to them as little wee babies at their family's oversight and as the oversight of the church as nothing, because it's not nothing. In fact, it's profound. And the reason that I can say it's profound, I wouldn't have said that eight and a half years ago before I met Greg Fields and spent time with Greg. It seemed ridiculous to me. But now understanding the Presbyterian view and the Pado baptist view, I have a very high appreciation for it. In many ways, they view the... Um, Baptism by sprinkling of an infant as the New Testament covenant seal of, or covenant mark or ceremony, like circumcision was for a Jew. But you didn't wait for a Jew to get to the point of confession before you circumcised them. So now, spending time with Greg, I have a very high view of it. The child is presented to the people of God at their earliest days at the point of baptism by sprinkling and that child is never treated as anything other than part of the people of God unless they prove otherwise. Now, we are different in that we look for that point of confession. Now, we don't slap around our little kids that start singing Jesus loves me before they're baptized. Shut up, you little pagan. We don't do that. I mean, we're looking at that as little signs of faith, but we're looking for that point of confession as the point of baptism. Now, what time with Greg has done for me, and I think in a lot of ways, um, the other elders and as an impact on this church is that we have a much higher view of baby dedication. Now, it's not equated with the Pado-Baptist view of what's taking place there, but we have a higher view of it with a child, a little baby. It's much more than cutesy pictures. 
We are presenting this child to be part of the people of God, and we're going to treat them as part of the people of God until they prove otherwise. So it's a much higher view of that event. And in some ways, I, I tried to sort of make this easy for these girls uh, yesterday. In some ways, we're placing the water at a different point than the Pado baptist does. If you want to make it just real simple, all the ingredients are there, and that's why this family has submitted to do this. It's a great example of dif- different beliefs within, within the same faith, that we can celebrate a Pado baptism even though we as confessional Baptists believe that that's God's best, we can celebrate that there's room in argument for paedo-baptism, although we believe confessional baptism is best. So we this morning have the opportunity of baptizing four girls who in many ways uh, um, still have, I would say, still have a very high view of their paedo-baptism, yet are submitting to the leadership of the church and are standing, their family is standing in agreement with us and saying, we will come under your oversight and submit to your authority as the church at Crosspoint Fellowship. So it's still a faith venture for them. This is not somehow betraying what happened to them or what uh, was done at a, at a, at their first, in their first days with their family. But in some ways, it is a beautiful faith gesture as they're submitting to the leadership of the church. The girls wanted, um, felt like it was important to know that they've been trusting Christ for a long time. This isn't their beginnings. In fact, what's kind of cool, I would say, about all four of these girls is if you were to ask them, tell me about your conversion. Tell me when you got saved. Their testimony. If you ask them for their testimony, the testimony would sound something like, well, I've never not trusted Christ. There's not some point in time where they began to trust him after praying a prayer. For them, there's never a time when they didn't. It's really a cool testimony and something that we can celebrate today is this is part of their journey that, is, that began a long time ago. And it's a beautiful picture of there are different beliefs in the same faith, yet we as a church can come together in like-mindedness and practice this together. Brad is doing the heavy lifting for me this morning, and um, uh, Pastor Brad is going to come up and baptize our, our um, fields girls at this point. So I'm going to turn it over to Brad. This is the field's oldest daughter, Abby. Abby, are you trusting in Jesus as your only hope for life and salvation from sin? Abby, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is Ellie Fields. Ellie, are you trusting Jesus as your only hope for life and salvation from sin? And I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is Lucy Grace. Lucy, are you trusting in Jesus as your only hope for life and salvation from sin? 
Lucy, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. is Zoe Fields. Zoe, are you trusting in Jesus as your only hope for life and salvation from sin? Zoe, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for this family and for these girls and then we'll continue in worship. Father, we're grateful for uh, profession and confession that we've been a part of this morning and seen. We're thankful for this family that you've brought to us, for how dear they are to us as friends, how faithful they are. If you're a visitor here this morning, I want to make the point to tell you that you're welcome. I hope that there are some folks that will meet you this morning and answer any questions that you might have. Shake your hand. We have a good problem of being pretty close to each other and um, as a church. It's a good problem, but the reason I, it's good, but the reason I call it a problem is sometimes it can make out or play out on a Sunday morning where we, we don't meet somebody that's not part of us just yet. And uh, we don't make the point to make you feel welcome, and I don't want that to happen. So I'm hoping right now, at least uh, from this, from the pulpit this morning, you're made to feel welcome, and I'm hoping that somebody will come alongside you over the course of the morning. I'm going to begin with prayer, and then we'll, uh, I'll give you kind of a view of where we're going to be going this morning. God, we are thankful for this beautiful picture of submission this morning. I'm thankful that these girls submitted to this, not out of just duty or drudgery, but out of faith. I'm thankful for a family that wouldn't part fellowship or avoid fellowship over different beliefs within the same faith. God, I pray that that would be a testimony to this church and to this community of um, unity and fellowship and like-mindedness in the essentials. And I pray that together we can celebrate four girls that were willing to do that and a family that was willing to do that. God, I pray for these next few minutes, uh, how we spend, the, spend our time. Lord, I um, have a um, sobriety this morning about what we're about to engage. I pray that I'll be faithful, that we as a church will be faithful to your word. Um, I pray that you would take off my mind uh, cares or concerns over what people might think. But Lord, to whatever cost to what people might think of me or us, or, um, that we'll be faithful. I'm thankful that we have your word, and I'm thankful that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We ask for his 
leadership and his guidance this morning. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I like Don Williams, the old country singer. Um, He has a song that's called I Believe in Love. Some of y'all probably know that song. I was listening to it the other, other day as I was preparing this sermon or this series of sermons. I just happened to be in the car driving around, so the church was on my mind as I listened to this old Don Williams song that I know by heart nearly. I don't believe in superstars, organic food, and foreign cars. I don't believe the price of gold, the certainty of growing old, that right is right and left is wrong, that north and south can't get along, that east is east and west is west, and being first is always best. But I believe in love. I believe in babies. I mean, that's a good thing to believe in. I believe in mom and dad. This is solid gold right here. And I believe in you. I mean, I, who can't like those lyrics? And who doesn't like his old deep voice? Just simple, you know, just beautiful. And I'm singing along with him, and I'm singing along in this next verse that goes something like this. Well, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. I'd like to think of God as love. He's down below. He's up above. He's watching people everywhere. He knows who does and doesn't care. And I'm an ordinary man. Sometimes I wonder who I am. But I believe in love. I believe in music. I believe in magic. And I believe in you. I mean, the, the lyrics continue. And they're really simple. They're easy to memorize. They're easy to sing along with. And frankly, they're charming. I mean, who doesn't believe in babies? But a song about believing in babies. I believe in babies. I believe in mom and dad. I believe in old folks. I believe in children. I believe in music and magic. It's really good stuff to believe in and realizing, man, this guy right here in the middle of this song that I've sung since I was a wee lad, probably, is a message that church doesn't really matter. Church is how you want to define it. I believe in church as I want it to be or not. And I believe in God as I want him to be or not. I believe he knows who cares and who doesn't care. Is that the definition of salvation now? The salvation according to Don Williams. The message according to Don Williams is a mess, frankly. I don't know that I'll stop liking the song, but I may not sing that verse frankly, because I realize how wrong it is, how charming it can be for the world, but how wrong it is relative to God's Word. It stuck out to me in this series of sermons that, were, that I was preparing, asking and answering the question, what even is church? It's an important question, or we might find ourselves singing along with Don, believing along with Don, if we don't ask and answer the question. Some of the things that have come to mind over the years as we've been asking and answering this question is we have to know the answer to this question so that we can pray toward and endeavor to be what God says the church is. If you don't know what the Bible says the church is, then how could we possibly hope to be what the church is? We also have to know what the church is. We have to ask and answer this question so that we can lovingly Give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect. 
In other words, that we can lovingly, in our context that we've talked about as a church, is in many ways a churchless, excuse me, churchless Christian context. We can lovingly give an account for the hope within in that context and say, that's not okay. That's not God's view of the church. You can't love Jesus apart from loving God's people. And how we can lovingly but accurately give an account for that in our context. We have lots of church buildings, but we have very few church people. Whenever Christy and I first came to Greenville, we were uh, called here or led here by our mother church, the leadership at our mother church, which is Ridge, at the time was Ridgecrest Baptist Church, which is about a mile from here. And it's a pretty large church. You know, if you're going to go start a business somewhere, you're probably not going to start a business in a place where there's eight kajillion of them. Now, thankfully, we weren't starting a business. We were called here to start a church, which is a very different deal. But it has some, at least some similarities where you're at least asking the question, why would we plant a church where there, at that time there were 98 Christian churches in our community? I don't know how many there are. I hadn't counted it. This was on the Chamber of Commerce website. 98 Christian churches serving about 25,000 people. And our estimates, based on conversations with other church folks in our community, is about three to 5,000 people attending church in our local area. Now, I said 25,000 people. That's, I want to add in there 75,000 people in the surrounding area. So from our estimates, three to 5% of people are in, involved, in, engaged in a local body of believers. Maybe we're a churchless Christian context. And if we're going to give an account for the hope within in this context, we've got to know what the church is. Is church two bubbas hanging out at Starbucks? Is church Billy Bob in the woods hunting and praying while he's waiting for that big buck to come out? Is that church? We have to know the answer to that to give an account for it. We have to know what the church is before we'll know what we endeavor to plant if you've been around Crosspoint for a period of time, you know that it's something that we're burdened about is being missional and planting and taking the church where it isn't. You have to know what the church is before you can determine where it isn't. Like, otherwise, we wouldn't have planted in Greenville with 98 Christian churches, a stone's throw from each other. But you have to know what the church is in order to determine where it isn't and what you want to reproduce by faith. So it's an important question. Last week, we considered the first piece of a definition that we're building over the course of November is that church is a people. Last week, we considered as a people that, it's, that the church is a people. It's not an activity. It's not a place you go. It's not a building. It is actually a people. And that people uh, may have some activities, but there aren't church activities and then other activities. That your identity as a believer is you are the people of God. The first part of the definition is that you are, the church is a people. The second part that we're going to consider today, I'm pretty sober about because this, doesn't, this sermon doesn't make for large churches, frankly. That the church is an accountable people. The church is an accountable people. Turn to Joshua chapter 7. As you're turning there, if you're a note taker, I'll give you kind of a plan of where we're going this morning. I'm going to have you look with me at five passages. I'm going to go to a couple other places as we go. But for the most part, we're going to spend our time in five passages. Joshua chapter 7 is the first of those five. 1 Corinthians 5 
is the next. Matthew 7 is the next after that. Matthew 18 is the fourth. And Colossians 1.28 is our fifth passage this morning. In asking and answering the question, what is the church? Today we will consider that we are an accountable people starting in Joshua chapter 7. What I want to show you from Joshua chapter 7 and a little bit from chapter 6 is that what happens to one impacts all. The conversation of accountability, the conversation of the church being accountable starts with the reality that what happens to one impacts all when you're a people. Starting over here in Joshua chapter 6, actually, you can follow along with little excerpts, but the meat of where we're going to be looking here in these next few minutes is in chapter 7. The nation of Israel has crossed the Jordan on dry ground and has gone into the promised land to begin the conquest. They've wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. Back up beyond that, they left and were drawn out of Egypt through the plagues, the mighty acts of judgment. They wander around the wilderness. They park out at Nebo. The book of Deuteronomy is written. Moses dies. They cross the Jordan on dry ground. They go into the promised land and begin the conquest. If you're familiar with that part of the story, you know that Jericho is the first city that they come to, or the first city that they are to conquer. God gives them some specific instructions, beginning in verse 17. The city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, some of the things were going to be destroyed, and some of the things were going to be set aside and kept aside for the future, um, or for the movement and the the moving tabernacle fixtures. The city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Look at verse 18. But you, you people, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you've devoted them, you are devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction itself and bring trouble upon it. Don't take any of these things that are devoted to destruction and keep them for yourselves. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy, are set apart. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. The people go into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Things are going pretty good. They defeated the city. Apparently, everything's been devoted devoted to destruction, as it should be, and hopefully all the devoted things were put aside as they should. But let's look at chapter 7. But the people of Israel, don't you pay attention to that word, the people of Israel, of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. So it sounds like apparently all the people that are going into Jericho must have taken some of the devoted things and set them aside because the people broke faith in regard to the devoted things. That's what you would think so far. But let's see what it says next. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, wait a second. Who took the devoted things? It wasn't everybody, turns out. It was this dude named Achan. And yet God's anger burns at the people, against the people of Israel. Now, the next scene is the attempted conquest 
of a little town called AI. Think of AI like Lone Oak, just small towns, you know, it's not a real insurmountable or doesn't appear to be an insurmountable task. And here's how the story goes. Joshua sent some men from Jericho to AI or Lone Oak. Go out and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Lone Oak. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil, for their, uh, toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, or went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Wait a second. 3,000 people go to Lone Oak, this little bitty tiny town, Ai, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent and the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And here they are supposed to conquer the promised land. Things went well at Jericho. Jericho is what appears to be an insurmountable city, an insurmountable task, this huge wall surrounding it. And here they are routed by Ai. And Joshua, he got this report, and he tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we'd been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, Ai? Of all people. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord says to Joshua, Get up, Joshua. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Is it Achan or is it Israel? He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So Achan has sinned, yet all the people are accountable. What happens to one impacts all. He says, get up, consecrate the people, and consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes... And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. And he who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, 
son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel took him, or took with him, with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver in the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and even his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble. I have to admit to you, years ago, man, years ago before I really saw this chapter in context, this would have been a chapter that I wouldn't want an unbelieving friend to ever read. Because I didn't have an explanation for it. Like, what in the world is going on here? Why would God let this happen? Because it seems so unfair. I mean, does anybody else that's really considered the story feel like that's unfair? 36 men lost their lives because of Achan's sin. Just start there. 36 men lost their lives because of one man's sin. The people, the 3,000 that went off to defeat Ai, are routed. they got to deal with that shame. Defeated by Lone Oak. God is mad and his anger is burning at the people because of this one man's sin. And then if you're paying attention and really considered what else was involved, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had are brought before the nation of Israel. And together Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire and stoned them with with stones. Man, apparently, when you're a people, what happens to one impacts all. Ironically, the very thing that I would have been ashamed of, that I wouldn't want my unbelieving friends to read, is the re- in, in many ways a beautiful illustration of the gospel story. It's a beautiful illustration, in this case, of the fall of man. What one man does impacts all is a beautiful description of what Adam did, impacting all of us. In fact, Paul develops as much in Romans chapter 5. I'll share that passage with you. If you'd like to jump over there and you're super fast, you're welcome to do that. 
If you think this unfair, just think for a minute, this passage or this story about Achan and what happened to his family, what happened to the 36, and what happened to the entire people of God is a beautiful illustration of what happened to man in the fall. Consider these passages. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam and Eve's sin introduced and led death into the world and impacts every single one of us. Every time you go to a funeral, every time your body is broken in some way, every time you push one step forward and you experience two steps back, when you arrange your desk and then a few days later it's in worse state than it was before, man, that's a result of the fall. Decay is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. One trespass led to condemnation for all men, because of one, says in the verse before, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Doesn't seem fair, does it? You go back a couple verses in front of that. In chapter, in, in chapter 5, verse 15, if many died through one man's trespass, if the world is looking for what's just, If you're looking for what feels just, you look at something like that and you go, man, that just really doesn't seem right. If you don't like that picture of corporate guilt, then you miss out on the reality that in the gospel we are experiencing corporate righteousness through one man's righteousness. The sections of those passages that I didn't read go like this. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If this seems unfair to you, then you've got to realize that the gospel isn't fair. Man, that's a little side note that was worth considering. Be thankful for God's view of a people and our connectedness to corporate guilt, because it's by faith our connectedness to Christ makes for corporate righteousness that we all experience and enjoy. So if you're ashamed of this Joshua chapter 7 passage, you're missing out on a beautiful illustration of the gospel. But what I want you to see this morning, more than anything, is that what happens to one impacts all when you're part of a people. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You might have the thought that this is just sort of an Old Testament sort of image, Old Testament sort of picture. I used to have a difficult time synthesizing the way it appeared that God was moving in the Old Testament and the New until I continued reading, frankly. And you see a passage like this and you realize that God is, yes, in fact, the same yesterday, today, and always. He wasn't just and holy in the Old Testament and loving and graceful in the New. He's the same yesterday, today, and always. And watch what happens in this passage, in this letter to the Corinthian church. Chapter 1, verse, excuse me, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual 
immorality among you. If you want to sort of import this Achan story, you could say it's actually reported that some of you have taken the devoted things. I mean, let's connect it, because this is a New Testament version in many ways of the Achan story. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Apparently a guy is having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Or excuse me, his stepmother. And, And Paul says, and you, church, are culpable. You, church, corporately, are arrogant. And he, in the words that he's about to share with them, he is holding this whole church accountable for what this one man is doing. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You could say in many ways, next time you guys are together, you need to deliver this man to the valley of Achor. Take this man to the valley of trouble. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What one man does, do you not realize what one man does impacts all when you are a people? A little leaven leavens the entire lump. Y'all need to know, too, that this is just doesn't have to do with some vile sin like sexual sin. This has to do with all types of sins. This, in this case, this example is some pretty vile sexual sin. In old, over in Joshua chapter 7, it had to do with some devoted things, with taking something that God had instructed to go somewhere else. This also has to do with things like being divisive and being unleadable in the church. Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it, church, see to it. In other words, take action that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That principle is in play right there. One person's bitter. Guess what happens when one person's bitter? It is contagious. What happens to one person affects all. So what are we supposed to do about it? Here are a few things. First, we are to keep our brother. You can turn over to Matthew chapter 7 as I share a passage with you from Genesis. Matthew chapter 7. The first thing we are to do is we are to keep our brother. Listen to these words in, regarding Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Ironically, the world's philosophy about how the part that we are to play or not to play in each other's lives has come from the great philosopher, the murderer, Cain. Who am I? My brother's keeper. 
we as a church need to realize that we are in fact our brother's keeper. Those words came from a murderer. Matthew chapter 7 in some ways has become the slogan for mind your own business. It has become the go-to passage, the magnum opus, the mantra of those that say, mind your own business, who can't memorize or who doesn't, hasn't already memorized and know off the top of their head this first verse in chapter 7, judge not that you not be judged. Man, it's a go-to passage for stay out of my business. And here they are, right, the words from Jesus. But let's read them in context. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. In the type of judgment that you administer, you will receive. The type of judgment that you give others is the type of measure that you will receive. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, it continues. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage is not the go-to passage for stay out of each other's business. It's not the go-to passage for I am not my brother's keeper. Actually, this passage is showing us how to be our brother's keeper. It's giving us some insight out of how to go about it. You will see specks in your brother's eye, but the potential there is not to notice the, the collection of specks in your own called a log. And it's not saying leave them alone with that speck. In fact, it says, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Ironically, the mantra and the slogan and the magnum opus is mishandled, for we are our brother's keeper. Look at the next verse. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And read this passage in context and realize this passage is teaching you how to remove specks and logs, how that process is supposed to be done. Here in this next passage, contextually, he's saying this is a holy process. He's saying these are the pearls that the people of God get to experience with each other. The pearl of speck removal. And don't do that before pigs and swine. Do that for people that appreciate it. Do that for people that value it. Do that for people that need it and recognize that they can't go it without a brother that will remove a speck. Or a brother that if you think you need help with the speck removal, you need lots of help with log removal. Every bit of this has to do with accountability and the relationship that we have with each other and the need that we have for each other in our lives for speck and log removal. So how do we go about this process? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. How do we go about this holding each other accountable? If one, what, one happens, if what happens to one impacts all, How then do we go about holding each other accountable? 
Thankfully, we don't handle it like the nation of Israel did in Joshua chapter 7. There probably wouldn't be many folks in this church at all. I would be dead covered by a pile of stones, as would most of you. Here are two things. The first one is really, um, I would say, is a little easier than the second, but yet it's still pretty hard. How do we go about holding each other accountable if we are connected to each other, if we truly are accountable to each other? What happens to one person happens to all. How do we go about holding each other accountable? First of all, we hold each other accountable in engaging the exposed Word of God. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's such a dear passage to me because sometimes, sometimes more than others, I feel like it's folly. This morning, I feel like the worst communicator, um, preacher, I've, I've felt in a long time from the pulpit. But this gives me comfort that he uses folly. He uses the folly of what Ben McGraw is delivering this morning. The folly of what Ben McGraw is using to save those who believe. So realize when we're holding each other accountable, we're holding each other accountable with something like the preached word. If you, if you know of a brother or sister or a life group member that you haven't seen in weeks or months, and you're coming alongside them saying, brother or sister, you need to come back into hearing the preached word. You're encouraging them and helping them and holding them accountable. And I will tell you right now, that work is exhausting. I'm going to just confess to you, there are times where I've been a whole lot better at it than others. And when I was good at it, I never felt good about it. I never, especially when I was the preacher. It was easier, a whole lot easier when Brad or Scott was preaching. Because I could go to a neighbor or a friend, some of our church folks live near us, or I could talk to somebody in a life group that I haven't seen in a while, hey man, you need to hear what God said through the folly of Brad Cardwell's preaching on Sunday. It's harder when it's me, because it feels like it's self. You need to hear the folly of what Ben McGraw preached on Sunday. But you can do that. And some of you have done that, but you know that work is exhausting. But that's what we do. We hold each other accountable to be exposed and engage, or to engage the exposed word. The life of the body, should, this, this involvement, this accountability connected with each, connectedness with each other should mean that we are asking each other questions like, what are you doing with God's word? What did you, shepherd of this family, your family, what did you do with the preached word from Sunday. How did the let us's of Hebrews impact you, or how are you going to walk in what you heard? Scott and I have had a lot of those conversations, but Scott invites it, and I invite it from Scott. And some of you, I hope, have that relationship, and if you don't, you need it. You need it. Man, that's a part of accountability. And I, honestly, it's exhausting, but lots of things are exhausting. Exercise is exhausting, Right? but it's good for you. You need it. It's exhausting to eat good food. You got to go to the grocery store and it's hard because you got to buy fresh food, but it's good. Man, just because something's exhausting, we don't want to take the path of least resistance. When I take the path of least resistance, I find myself in a mess. So I encourage you. In fact, I beg you to be about the work of encouraging each other to engage the exposed word through the folly of of what some knucklehead preached because God spoke through the folly 
of preaching to save those who believe. Man, that's huge. The second thing, this is a challenging one. I mean, that's challenging in and of itself, but Matthew 18 is quite challenging. It's quite treasured, but quite challenging. Beginning in verse 15, how do we hold each other accountable? This is the second thing. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Man, what a challenging passage. The first few verses there are not real hard. You know, you think about this this process of your brother sinning against you and you going to them and saying, hey man, this is not okay. But yet I find as easy as I think that should be, the church is a whole lot better at peacemaking than we are about being faithful and working through stuff like this. We might overlook an offense from a brother or sister, and if we can overlook it and truly overlook it and forgive them, then it may never be dealt with. But there are some offenses that are very difficult to overlook, and we don't know what to do with that. So a lot of times, we will just give them the cold shoulder, we'll give them the smile on Sunday morning, we will glad hand each other, but we will just exist together. It happens all the time. You know what I'm talking about. And when you see that person in Walmart, you smile like, oh, it's so good to see you. And when they walk away, you're like, oh, man, I hate seeing them. Because we're unreconciled. We haven't dealt with it the way Matthew 18 encourages. We haven't truly held each other accountable. We've peace faked. And a lot of times that can result in secretly despising someone for those things that you can't overlook. You're like, that person shouldn't have done that. And you secretly despise them. You harbor contempt in your heart while you continue to take the Lord's Supper together. It happens in this church even all the time. But it shouldn't. Because people that are truly holding each other accountable should work through this process. Or it might just result in divorce. Where we divorce the friendship and divorce the relationship by bailing all together and just getting a fresh start. I need a fresh start at a new church. What church? Well, I hope I can find some, a church that doesn't have people that are as messed up as the last one. So we bail on these opportunities to apply the salve and the medicine of the gospel through a process like this thinking it's better because it's easier. And just like I said a moment ago, the path of least resistance will leave you in a mess where you don't even know how to walk in the gospel anymore because you just go through one divorce after another. You defriend people on Facebook. Has that ever happened to you? Man, it's happened to me. Not on Facebook anymore, but it's happened to my wife because of stuff that I've said or done. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Folks that prof- profess faith in Christ... Man, seriously, people of God, that, we have the goods. He shows us how to walk in that. When one person sins against another, we go to that person and we tell them, hey man, you hurt my feelings in what you did or what you said that day. It might be as simple as sometimes, uh, Jerry and I do this, Jerry might come to me and say, hey hey man, are we okay? I'm like, yeah, dude, we're totally cool. (laughs) 
but I may have, it may have felt like I was kind of aloof or something. You know, dudes can do that. It's okay for dudes to do that. <laughs> it's okay. In fact, it's encouraged. I do it with the elders at times, or I do it with a deacon at times, or I'm like, I feel like things are kind of cool. Hey, are we okay? And every now and again, you ask that question, and they'll say, you know what? As a matter of fact, I've been needing to talk to you. You're like, okay, hold on. Let me sit down. I'm ready. And it might be something I need to hear, something that I didn't even realize that I did. And Matthew 18, this accountability that we have with each other comes into play, and there's this beautiful reconciliation on the other side of that. Instead of just divorce, enduring with one another until we're just so sick of each other that we divorce. Half the time when stuff like that happens, when folks I find out that are upset with me or something, they leave and they divorce, I'm like, man, what happened? And it's not till later that I hear through someone else that I said something or did something to offend them. And I'm like, man, I wish I'd had an opportunity to say I'm sorry. I didn't realize it. What a beautiful opportunity we have as the church to walk through these things. They are not easy, but they're good. And over the course of Matthew 18, this passage, they they grow progressively public, progressively difficult, and honestly, they grow progressively grave in what unfolds. When two brothers sin, one sins against another, man, they can reconcile pretty easy. When one guy is just continuing on unrepentant, then it might be two or three go to this brother or sister and say, hey, man, This is not okay. But when they continue on in unrepentance, then it's brought before the church, either brought before the leadership or brought corporately before the church. It is a very public venture. And then it gets quite grave because it says what's loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. What's bound on earth is bound in heaven. Ironically, many people that recognize that God and acknowledge that two people can walk into a worship center or a sanctuary and a pastor can escort them through a covenant ceremony where they believe with everything in them that God now recognizes their marriage, they won't do the same with this. When the church gets to the point where they have to remove someone from among them, you can recognize marriage in the high court of heaven and consider what might happen And a church's decision as ridiculous and irrelevant. But according to this passage, it's recognized in heaven what is loosed or bound on earth. So an unrepentant professing disciple is loosed in heaven as they are on earth. And you don't have to think hard about what that implies. Like branches already dead, they are removed. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to show you the rest of the story there so you can see what this looks like applied. This, these later steps of Matthew 18, you get a chance to see what it looks like in the rest of this passage. I stopped reading at verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 5. Just to remind you of the context, this joker is, has some sort of sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul is saying, man, Corinthian church, y'all are a mess for not dealing with this. And listen to what he says over the course of this passage. He says, you're arrogant, ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then in verse 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And now let's continue through the rest of the passage. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What he's appealing to there is, man, if you are faithful to do this as hard as it may be, then what you're enjoying here is sincerity and truth and fidelity as the people of God. But if you continue on not dealing with these sorts of things, then what you're really enjoying, whatever you think you might be enjoying, is the leaven of malice and evil. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, do not associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater by practice, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not my business. It's not your business, church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Man, that's hard to do. I'll tell you what, in the course of our existence as a church in the last 11 years, there have been five or six occasions where we've had to get to the point where a situation of unrepentance has been presented to the church body. It hadn't been done on a Sunday morning where visitors are hearing it, but as a church family, as the membership, a bunch of people who through membership have agreed to be accountable to this sort of process, who have submitted to this sort of process, where we together have had to remove someone from our church. It's happened four or five times over the life life of our church. And I'll tell you, it's been some of the hardest things that we've ever gone through as a church. The most recent occasion, Scott was the spokesman for someone who was removed from the church, and he wept through the entire thing. On a Sunday night, we met up here at 6 p.m. I think it was a Sunday night. And he wept through the whole thing, because that's like family. Unrepentant, though, Talk to the hand family. I will not repent of how I'm moving. And it's one of the hardest things that will ever happen to you. But the cool thing is, is of those five or six times where we've had to get to that point with folks, two or three of those times have moved to the final step of church discipline, which is restoration. And as hard as the earlier steps were, beautiful this last step was beautiful. Some of the most joyful times we've ever experienced as a church, like the father when the prodigal son comes running home, we, we sacrificed the fattened calf. Actually, we had fried fish, I think, and ice cream one time. What a weird combination, but it was the best ice cream and fried fish we ever, ever had. We came together and worshiped together and enjoyed together. That God used the sting and the pain of isolation from the people of God to bring a person to a place of repentance that nothing else would do. All the reasoning in the world wouldn't bring them to that place. Every time we've worked through this over the last 11 years, it has taken, in many cases, months and in some cases, years to get to that final step. 
It is a very, very slow, agonizing process. But God uses it if you trust his design. Does he use it every single time? Does every single person come to a place of repentance? No, I wish. But some do. God uses the sting and the pain of isolation from the people of God to bring them to a place of true brokenness and true repentance. And they come home and we celebrate and we reconcile. And from that point on, they're not second-class members of the body. They are part of us, one of us. And we celebrate and enjoy what God did through a very painful but very good very agonizing, very exhausting, very inefficient process. I'm thankful for this design, but I won't tell you that it's easy. It's beautiful, though, when God uses it. Some in this body are testimony to it. I realize this morning there have been some very hard notions and truths, and I don't know how well or poorly... They were communicated. I hope that they were communicated to the point where it's not just a soup sandwich, just an absolute mess, that you can appreciate that God has a design that may not fit with what you like. But it's designed this church has walked in for 11 years. The beauty of starting a church is we were able to open God's word and said, let's just do it the way the Bible says. And I don't mean to sound sort of elementary and like everybody else is messed up and we got it all figured out. We just had a chance to build our own foundation. And we're reading here in God's Word, like Matthew 18, like 1 Corinthians 5, and we're seeing this environment, this context of the church, this fidelity, and this beauty of a church that is truly dealing with the unrepentant in a way that he prescribes. And together we're saying, you know what? We may never be the biggest church in the world because of this, but hopefully we'll be faithful and true. Hopefully we'll be faithful and true. I know they're very hard notions, they definitely fly in the face of the world that says, what, am I my brother's keeper? But ironically, they fly in the face of a lot of contemporary Christianity. And fly, this design flies in the face of a lot of contemporary church folk that must think we've certainly evolved above this sort of barbaric process. Certainly we're better than this. And thankfully, Crosspoint's not. Crosspoint is going to follow God's design in this because it works and it's good. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase chronological snobbery. That's a common problem with thinking that the most recent and the most modern must be the most insightful. And we can suffer from chronological snobbery and think that we are too evolved and too wise and too... Um, modern to ever do something like this but those of us that have been part of a process like this you've seen God use it and you've seen God be glorified in it I celebrate the fact that I, I believe in most part we are a church that walks through this process of Matthew 18 the entire process so those early stages like hey man are we okay <laughs> what a great church it just has a bunch of people that are willing to ask hey man are, are we okay did I do something to offend you that are keeping short accounts with each other because we race to this table every week and we want to be in good standing with God and with each other. Those of you that aren't, man, I appeal to you. I urge you, if you are crossways with another believer, especially one in this church, 
man, now's the time to apply the salve of the gospel. Now's the time to walk in that Matthew 18 process and do this. It's clumsy. It feels like the folly of preaching. It's clumsy and it's hard, but it's good. And God uses it and he's glorified in it. The last passage I'm going to share with you is the motive for this. First Corinthians, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The reason that we want to be a people that are faithful in dealing with roots of bitterness The reason we want to be a a people that are faithful in dealing with lovingly, but faithfully and truthfully dealing with the unrepentant. The reason we want to keep very short accounts with each other. The reason we want to be willing to ask, hey man, are we okay? Or even worse, hey, two dudes, I need you to go with me to talk to this brother who's unrepentant. The reason we want to be a people who are faithful in this really exhausting hard work is because what's at stake is the beauty and the readiness of the bride for Christ's return. It's not so that your life will be easier. Because trust me, your life would be easier not doing any of this. It won't be better. But it'd be easier never doing any of this stuff. What's at stake here, the motive behind this, is the readiness for Christ's return. Paul says, Him we proclaim, we warn everyone, we teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's a good word. It's a struggle. And it may keep us small, but that's God's business. He didn't call us to be the biggest church. He called us to be the church. And our size, or who likes or doesn't like this, is not our business. What's at stake here is the beauty and the readiness of the bride. We keep our brother. We remove the specks, and we ask for help with the logs. We remove the wicked and the evil and the divisive who are unrepentant. Because we all have little snapshots of that. But those who by nature and by practice are unrepentant in those things, we remove them from among us. And the character and the tone of all these is humility and the disposition of all involved must be searchability. That's what membership is. When someone says, I'm coming for membership, they're saying, I'm coming willing to be searchable and accountable in these things because I know I need it. You still remove the speck. But the character of speck removing is serious self-examination for the readiness and the beauty of the bride. Let me pray and we'll take our supper. Lord, I pray that you will make sense of this mess. I feel like this is one of the most important, easily misunderstood topics regarding the church that we will consider over the course of this month. And I'm especially feeling the folly of it. But I know that you use it. And I pray that you'll use it in this people to make for a people that run to accountability. 
to make for a people that invite accountability, that are searchable by character, that are humble by nature because we realize we need each other involved in our lives. God, I pray that we will be a people, people that are faithful and true in walking through this Matthew 18 process. I pray that we'll be okay with the inefficient and the struggle of it, the exhausting nature of it. I pray that we will work with the energy that you have given us, knowing that it's true and knowing that you use it. I pray we'll be faithful to walk in it. God, I'm thankful that you've given us a way to walk through these sorts of things that's better than just vacating a friendship or divorcing a church or evacuating from some sort of difficult context. I'm thankful that you've given us a process and a design in a way, albeit difficult, a way that's good and a way that you use. God, we love you. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read our passage from 1 Corinthians. The same passage we looked at last week for our supper will be the same passage we look at this week because it's fitting the connectedness among the people of God and how that even impacts the meal that we take together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. You're not coming together as a people. You're coming together as a bunch of individuals. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I wonder if those genuine among you are the ones who walk through this Matthew 18 process with each other, who apply the salve of the gospel in each other's lives and seek forgiveness and offer forgiveness and work through really hard conversations with each other when you've wronged each other. And the rest, the divisive bunch, are the ones that just say, man, did you know what Johnny did? You know what Sally did? Man, she's so inconsiderate. I'm going to smile at her next time I see her, but I secretly hate her guts. And if I can't endure much longer, I may just go find a new church. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who, who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Here's the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever eats, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that's the reference to the church body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Whoever takes the Lord's Supper without the body in view, eats and drinks judgment 
on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Man, there's so much to enjoy in that passage. Along with the supper, many connections from this morning. Let's distribute the elements and take and eat.